not have seen the cross, but we know it's real and happened. Oh, your love has ransomed. We may not see heaven yet, but we believe, we put our trust in the one who died, was buried and rose again. Your love has ransomed. Just before we get into the word today, let the Lord know that whatever was in your past, you're going to leave in your past. You're not going to try to bring it back up. As the old timers used to say, don't dig up what God's, God's blood and Jesus' blood has already buried. Don't dig it back up. Come on, look at your past right now and say goodbye. You're stepping into your present, into the future right now. Your past cannot dictate you anymore. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. You've been ransomed. You've been bought. You're not the same person anymore. You don't have to live like the way you used to live. There's a new you on the inside of you. God, I pray that that revelation of your love that brings transformation would capture our hearts today. And as we get into your word and we learn about some of the strong rebukes and corrections you gave the people of Israel, let us be reminded to never walk away from your love, lest we come under the same curse, the same judgment that they did. May we live for you, God, all the days of our life. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. amen. Bless the Lord if you love him. Amen. You may be seated. Come on. Are you ready for the word? Say, I'm ready. Amen. Open up your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 21. So glad that you're here. Going through the book of Matthew, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And in the first service, I only got through three of the four of these messages. But today, in the second service, I'm going through all four. Because I got to get to that last one because it ties together and makes sense. So if you are now viewing this, first service, folks, because I've asked you to do so a week ahead from now, and I told you that I'm not going to go over that part because I preached it here. Welcome to our time machine. You now get to get caught up. Everybody say amen. Did that make sense to everybody? Because I only got to three sections in the first service, and I'm talking to them now because next week I'm going to tell them to watch it because I know I'm going to get to all four today. Are you guys getting that? Isn't that, isn't that cool what we can do with technology? We're going to learn about the figs. We're going to learn about authority. We're going to learn about sons. We're going to learn about talents. It's all red letters today. It all comes from Jesus. Matthew chapter 21. Let's go to verse 18. Starting right here, we get into some serious stuff. Last week, we learned that Jesus went to the temple, overturned the tables. He, uh, you know, We could say he turned stuff upside down, but in reality, he put it right side up. He didn't make a mess. He cleaned it up, okay? And now he's coming back into that same place and on his way to the temple courts early in the morning, verse 18 says, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. How many of you are hungry early in the morning? Let's be honest. A lot of us wake up hangry. Verse 19, seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, he speaks to that fig tree, may you never bear fruit again. He curses it. Now, y'all maybe didn't know this, but let me just break down some stuff to you. Jesus cursed, y'all. He did. I know that's shocking. Oh, my goodness. Jesus cursed. He literally did. 
In our vernacular, a curse is usually a word that is nonsensical. How many know the F word means nothing the way that people use it as adjectives? As, as, as an adjective. At the very most, it could mean sex, but how come people are using the F word as an adjective before everything? I started driving Uber and Lyft to make a little, little side hustle, some side money, and I hear these people talk, and I am like, you sound ridiculous. You are putting the F word in between every single sentence, and it literally, literally makes you look unintelligent. The word doesn't even fit there. It doesn't even belong there. Just leave it out of your vocabulary. You'll sound so much more intelligent. Then there are curse words that our culture just says you shouldn't say, but they're not necessarily bad. I grew up uh, with my Italian uh, grandpa on the farm. He said the S word when he looked at the duty. Instead of saying duty, he said the S word. Is there really a difference between the S word and the word duty? No, there's really not. There's really not a difference. It's just our culture said it's okay to say duty, wrong to say the S word. Who made that decision? Maybe in another culture, it's okay to say the S word, and it's bad to say duty. You guys get my point there. So technically, it's not a curse. It's just using words that people say are bad, and then we call those curse words. Then there is swearing. Swearing is taking the name of the Lord in vain. I swear to God and all this, this, and that. And you're not supposed to do that. You're not to swear to God. You are simply to let your yes be yes and your no be no. There's other times that you and I try to pretend we're God, like when we stub our toes, we say, God damn it, God damn that little thing right there, and you thought I just cussed, but I didn't. The word damn is a literal word to send to hell. You are wanting to send to hell the thing that just stubbed your toe, but how many know that thing didn't move, you moved into it? Okay, and so saying the word God damn it, God damn that thing is inappropriate because you're not God and you don't get to go up to heaven and go, hey God, you need to damn some things right here. You need to damn them. Come on, God, come on, damn my, my, my bed here. And wouldn't that be funny if he just did? So you stub your toe, God damn this bed right now. And then literally it disappears, goes to hell fire, and now you don't have a bed. Would you be happy about God damning your bedpost? Some of you are like, would you please stop saying the word God damning things because it sounds so bad to my ears. But it's not. It's not a curse word in the, in the phrase God damns things. It's not a curse word in that. What makes it a swear or a curse word is when we are using it inappropriately. We are stringing together those words, and it's inappropriate. We don't get to damn things. How many are happy about that? How many know all of uh, I-90 would be damned tomorrow if we had the authority? <laughs> Fire Jesus. Okay. Let's move aside from all of that. Now, what literal curses are, literal curses in the Bible, is not stringing together some wrong words that you shouldn't do. It's not saying some culturally inappropriate words. Though the Bible says we shouldn't let unwholesome words come out of our mouth. We should be appropriate to our culture. Shouldn't try to be edgy, etc. But what we need to see in, in the Bible as a curse is where literally Jesus, God the Son, is there, and he's like, I am damning you now. I am cursing you now. I I am punishing you now. And how many know if, if people say only God can judge me, that should scare the hell out of them, right? That, and what did I cuss again? No, hell is a real place. Hell is representative in evil. And so if you have evil in your heart, you need to get the hell out of your heart. You need to get the evil. So how many know when people say only God can judge me, that should literally get them to say, I don't want 
hell, okay? Because this is what it looks like when Jesus judges. Now, there's two components of this that we need to get into. The first one is the theological, and that's where we need to go right now, Jeremiah chapter 24, verse 1. The second one, in, second one is agricultural, not as big of a point. We'll be there in just a moment. But let's go to Jeremiah chapter 24, verse 1. Why was Jesus picking on the fig tree? Why didn't he mess around with the grapevine? Why didn't he go kick the cantaloupe? You know, why, why is he looking at the fig tree on his way to the temple? What is the meaning of that? Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 24, verse 1. He's a prophet in the Old Testament. He comes long after Moses. He's right at the end of Israel's freedom as a nation. They're about ready to be taken over, brought into captivity. He's telling them why God is going to judge them. And here you now will see the story of the two baskets of the figs. Can you scroll up a little bit just so they can see it there? Everybody say, two baskets of figs. Is it of strawberries, blueberries, grapes? What is it, two baskets of figs. You're going to understand the importance of figs today. How many ever had a fig Newton? You like figs? Figs are pretty good. Figs have a nice little unique taste to them. I do enjoy them, but uh, you will hopefully enjoy this illustration. Now we're going to learn about some kings. Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim. Those are two fun names to say. Jehoiachin, like a chin, and Jehoiakim, like Kim Kardashian. That's the way I kind of remember it. I'm weird, but help me to help you, okay? Jehoiachin, Jehoiakim, king of Judah and the officials, the skilled workers, the artisans, the artists of Judah were carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So this is a bad day. This is now beginning to happen. They're getting exiled from their land to another land. They will be ruled, the Jewish people, all the way through the time of Jesus to the destruction of the temple, which is very much coming up here soon, which happens after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. They will be nomads and or uh, uh, being the subjects of another person's kingdom until 1948. And guess what? When we learn about Israel returning to the land, Jesus prophesies it, and he uses the example of a fig tree. That's in Matthew 24. We're going to be getting there pretty soon. So this is all going to tie together. Somebody say big picture. Okay, but right now, this is Old Testament. This is before the incarnation. This is before the gospel. This is Jeremiah clearly saying that God is sending off these Jewish people to the nation of Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. So if you ever wanted to know, how did Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get thrown into a lion's den? Who's doing them wrong? Why don't you like old Danny? What's wrong with him? It's because they're in a foreign nation worshiping their God, and they didn't like that, okay? So he says they're going to be taken by... Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Lord showed me two baskets of what? Two baskets of what? Figs, thank you. They were ripened early, and the other basket had very bad figs, so the bad could not be eaten. So we had these early ripened figs, early ripened figs, and they were good. What, what kind of ripened were they? Early, that's going to be very key to understanding this story. Early ripened figs were the best kind of figs. The other ones had been on their way too long, and they started to get stale. They were bad. Two baskets of figs. Then the Lord asked me, what do you see, Jeremiah? 
Figs. I see figs. The good ones are very good. The bad ones are so bad they cannot be eaten. How many think you could answer that question? Isn't that pretty easy? All right? That's how Jesus speaks to us. Like, literally, what do you see? Figs, Jesus. Some look good. Some look nasty. Now teach me something, right? I love the Bible. This Bible is so written for people like me. Verse 4. How many know it's not complicated? And he's going to explain what the figs mean. What do the figs mean? He's going to explain exactly what the figs mean. Then the word of the Lord came to me. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Like these good figs, I regard as good the exiles from Judah. So those who have come from Judah, the area of Jerusalem, those are the good figs, whom I sent away from this place to the land of the Babylonians. So not everyone who is getting shipped off because they're attacked and overcome by the enemy are bad. He's saying, I'm watching out over them. Some of them are good figs, like Daniel and his friends, we've already discussed here. Now what does he say in verse 6? My eyes will still watch over them for their good. I will bring them back to the land. When did they come back to the land? At the end of the Old Testament, in the books of the Bible like Zechariah and Ezra and Nehemiah. Can I hear an amen to that? If you know your Bible, they end up only being there for 70 years. They come back, okay? Now it says here, they'll come back to the land. I'll watch over them. I'll build them up, not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. Verse 7, I will give them a heart to know me. How many of you want a heart to know God? Amen. That I am the Lord. They will be my people. I will be their God, for they will return to me with all their hearts. So there seems to be something good that comes out of the judgment, out of them going into Babylon. Now let's look at the bad figs. Verse 8. But like the bad figs, which are so bad that they cannot be eaten, says the Lord, so I will deal with Zedekiah, king of Judah. So there's some bad figs in the bunch. We call it like a bad apple. How many have heard that phrase before? Apples, figs, same things here. So there's some good figs. There's some bad figs. King Zedekiah, king of Judah, his officials and their survivors from Jerusalem, they're going to be the bad figs in this illustration, whether they remain in this land or live in Egypt. Now watch how he curses them. Somebody say he's about ready to curse them out. Now what do I mean by that? Do I mean he's going to start dropping F-bombs? No, what he's going to do is deal with the judgment. Listen to what he says. He said, I will make them abhorrent. Like, oh, when you look at them, you're going to be like, that is so gross. I will make them an offense to all the kingdoms of the earth, a reproach and a byword and a curse. Not only is he cursing them, he's cursing them to be a curse and an object of ridicule wherever I banish them. So people are going to laugh at him and point him out. He says, I will send the sword Famine and plague. How many know that's worse than a bad weekend? Come on. Sword, famine, and plague against them until they are what? Destroyed. Until they are what? Come on, say it like you're in a death metal band. Destroyed. What's going to happen to them? They're going to be destroyed from the land I gave to them and their ancestors. Everybody get it? Some of you are like, you guys are crazy here. You're talking about destruction and laughing. Well, you know, at times we have to have you follow along, so I'm trying to help you here. But it is pretty serious. What does he say to the bad figs? You're going to be destroyed. You're going to be ridiculed. You're going to be mocked. You're going to be mistreated. Sadly, this is exactly what we're supposed to get from Jesus with the fig tree. Jesus, and let's go back to our notes, 
is going to the fig tree, and Mark says it's before the time of harvest. Now, some people try to find a contradiction between Mark and Matthew and say, see, Matthew doesn't mention that it's before the time of harvest. And so really, Jesus is an oompa loompa. He doesn't know it's not harvest time, and he just looks for figs, old silly Jesus, and then he curses it, poor tree. It wasn't even fig season. How many know? How many know? If you think you have come up with a contradiction, from the Bible that was written 2,000 years ago in a culture you know nothing about. How many know if you think you found that contradiction, chances are you're the Oompa Loompa. How many, how many probably know Mark and, and the other authors knew what they were talking about when they wrote about agricultural things? How many think you know what you're talking about? I don't. I don't think you know what you're talking about if you think there's a contradiction. I trust the guys who lived back then who actually understood it. I just give them the benefit of the doubt. And so here's what we get. A little bit from Mark and a lot of it what we read from Matthew. Jesus comes there. It's early in the season. But, but what do we learn about the figs that are early in the season? They're the best. So like they're starting to bud. They're starting to grow. There's something about them that are precious. And Jesus is looking at them going, you don't have it. And it's not harvest time. That's correct. But you don't have the buds you're supposed to have now so we can reap at harvest time. Now put it together with the spiritual connotation. He's told them in the past, some of you are like good figs. Some of you are like bad figs. Now he's looking at the nations and the nation of Israel. And he's saying, now y'all are no figs. There's nothing even here anymore. Maybe there's a few scattered. The Bible says a remnant. But now he is literally at the end of this chapter saying, I'm going to take the covenant from you and I'm going to give it to the nations. The rest of the stories we are going to learn about is why that happened to the Jewish people. Now, lest we become anti-Semitic and anti-Jesus' culture, we learn in Romans chapter 11 that Jesus is not done with the Jewish people. He just used their mistakes and them losing the covenant to open it up to all the other nations. But he still wants them to have their land. He still wants them to come to know and love him. And Romans chapter 11, way after the gospels written by the apostle Paul says don't worry about it Gentiles he's still going to bring them in so don't think you're better than them putting them down like the Nazis did like Martin Luther did early in the reformation calling them all types of names and being super anti-semitic to them that's why German what Germany uh, German people had anti-Semiticism uh, uh, come through in the, uh, the Holocaust, it's because the German author Martin Luther and others during the Reformation hated the Jews. So it's no coincidence that the Holocaust came from Germany and not from Zimbabwe. Why did it come from Germany and why was this hatred built into them is because uh, supposed Christians built into their th theology this hatred towards the fig tree, the hatred towards the Jewish people. And by doing that, they became an instrument of Satan, so sadly. Can I hear an amen to loving Jewish people? Shalom Aleichem. We pray peace upon the Jewish people, peace upon the city of Jerusalem, and may all the promises of God be fulfilled to them, and may the Messiah come quickly. Amen? May the Messiah come. They're expecting him to come now only the first time, but we know he's already come, right? So we got to get him ready for the second time. And the Bible says that it's going to be happening soon. We'll learn more about that in Matthew 24. So put the picture together. Very simple. Jesus is coming back to the, the place that where he had just left a few days ago, tearing up the temple, making, making things right 
right there. And now he's using the fig tree, which stands for Israel, as an example of the curse that's coming upon them. This curse doesn't mean he doesn't love them, doesn't care for them. He's going to weep over Jerusalem in just a little bit. But what this means now is the old covenant is not just going to be uh, what we live by for the uh, people of Israel. There's going to come a new covenant. It's going to be for all people, Jew and Gentile, and it's going to be based upon what he's going to do on that cross. Amen? Amen. Now, the, the last part that we have to get here is that he says something so remarkable about this because he's asked by his disciples, why did this tree wither up? So when the disciples saw how quickly the tree withered up, they said, how did the tree wither so quickly? Jesus replied, truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Somebody say, when I believe, I receive. Come on, get a little gospel. Say, when I believe, I shall receive. I'm just having fun. But that's a good way to remember it. When we believe, we receive. Now, somebody's like, Joe, proof it. Go, go over right now to Mount Everest, and you tell it to move. Because if you don't do it, I don't believe this works. Well, Jesus has already used this illustration before. It's, it's figurative language. We don't believe everything is to be taken uh, literally. We believe in the literal interpretation, which means that some things are to be taken figuratively. So if I'm a literary student of the Bible, I'll understand that not everything's literal. Does everybody get that? So you take the Bible literally. I am a literal student of the Bible, and I take whatever is meant to be literal, literal, whatever is supposed to be figurative, figurative. And that's where sometimes people get into trouble because they try to make Adam and Eve out to be figurative and all of that. No, it's pretty much history. And some other parts of the Bible they try to make into figurative. No, it's not a parable of uh, you know, the judgment in Armageddon. That's not a parable of what something bad is going to happen. That's actually what's going to happen, okay? Uh, the world is going to be in chaos. But here's something we can kind of tell. It's figurative. Say to a mountain, move. Say to this big thing, move, and it will be done. Why is that possible with God? Because God made mountains. So what are mountains to God? All we have to do to get an illustration of this is just go hang out with the CG artists, the computer graphics guys, right? Let's go, let's go to their offices somewhere there, Palo Alto, you know, the, the Bay Area. Let's go out there. Let's watch them do it. And guess what? We can watch them on the computer screen move mountains. How many believe they can do that? How many know what you're watching when you watch the Avengers is not real, okay? How are they doing that? They're doing that in this world called film, moving mountains by their power, by their code, by their ability. What is this universe to our God? This universe to our God is his second reality. This is his second life. This is the virtual world to God. We go into the virtual world and we come out and go, ooh, this is the real world. Jesus comes in and out of this world and steps back into his world and go, this is where it all came from. This is the real world, okay? So we didn't come from nothing exploding a long time ago, okay? That doesn't happen. If nothing can explode a long time ago and make this here, let's do it now. Make some nothing explode, please. I'd like a million dollars of that nothing exploding. And if, it didn't do, if you can't do it now, you'll never be able to do it. From nothing, nothing comes is, is a famous philosophical statement. So do we believe in the Big Bang? Yes, we just know who banged it. Right? God said, let there be light, bang, it happened. All of these wonderful, powerful things transformed. So when he's telling us, don't be afraid of mountains, don't be afraid of big, scary things, what he's saying is this world is moldable and shapeable by the power of faith. 
The power of faith molds and shapes the world. And this even happens with unbelievers. Unbelievers mold and shape the world in faith, and they don't even know they're borrowing it from God. So imagine right now I give you a tin, like a bin rather, like my kids have. And you put all your toys in there like my kids do, and then you put it away, okay? Think of this bin as being your worldview, okay? The Christians have a bin where God is creator. Uh, Excuse me, have a belief in that bin called God is creator. They have another belief that they put in that bin, God is all-powerful. How many have a worldview like that? So when you're describing things, you go to that bin, and you go, I can describe this real big universe because God created it. It didn't come from nothing. And then you can explain logic. I understand why we have logic. It's because God is a mind and he's logical and we interact with his mind. We never make those laws of logic. We only discover them. How many know Sir Isaac Newton didn't invent calculus? He discovered calculus. He didn't invent gravity. He discovers gravity, right? So so we have all of this here in our box, but now the scientist says, you silly Christians, I don't need to have God in my box. I have a box without God and I still have logic and I still have math and I still have all these smart things in this box. What do we say to that? person. Where did that box come from? Where did you get that box? Where did that logic come from? Isn't that neat how it works while you're trying to disprove me right now? What are you using? You're using your thinker. Using your thinker to disprove me. Did you get that from the goo through the zoo to you? Are your brain cells disagreeing with my brain cells? Does a, does a Mountain Dew fizzing can disagree with a Dr. Pepper fizzing can? Let's just fizz them up and watch them fizz back and forth. We're more than brain chemicals, aren't we? We understand metaphysical things like laws and understanding reason. And so the one who says, I don't live by faith, I just live by what I can see, that's pretty dumb because you can't see yourself. I can't see myself. Oh, I can see my arm. Yourself is an arm? Here I am. Well, I see my finger, I see an eye. See a head, it put me on a brain scan. I see that, but is that me? No, you don't even see yourself, dude. You see math? Oh, I see math. I put two apples together and they equal four apples. Yeah, but that thing you just said, two plus two equals four, show me that in the microscope. See, that's the language of intelligence. That's the language of the image of God, the Imago Dei coming through us. And so really everybody is using faith to shift things around in this world. The difference is we as Christians acknowledge where the ability of imagination and reason and change comes from. We acknowledge that from God. It's like the guy who scores the touchdown. One does his goofy little dance. The other one hits the knee. We both understand that they had to walk themselves across that line, but it's the one who understand that God gave them the ability to walk across that line that really shows true humility. We, we get that, right? Because if someone were to say, I don't need God, I don't need God, well, let's try not having God's stuff right now. Uh, don't use God's oxygen. One, two, three, go. Uh, don't use God's design in your brain. One, two, three, go. Come on, somebody. Don't use God's earth. You got it. You can go without God. You got it, dude. Go without God. You can do this. How many know the fool said in their heart, there is no God? So when they come and play with us here and they say, you Christians, you're so silly, move your mountain. I'll say, move your hand. The same way you moved your hand is the way God moved and created everything. The ability of free will, the intentionality of our minds to reason about what we're reasoning about all comes by faith. We don't see those things. 
But without those things, the world would be nonsense. And so now we put it into a spiritual realm. We, we accept more than just the natural things. We also ex- ex- uh, accept and believe in the spiritual things. And that is that God loves us and he desires to hear our prayers. And so what do we do when we don't see a mountain move? What do we do when we don't see things change? We pray until something happens, okay? And if the worst thing happens is you die praying and believing God for something, that's not too bad of a lie. Guys, I would rather die praying and believing God for something than shoot my brains out and die depressed. Hello, do you want to give up on life? I'd rather ask God to do it every single day until I go to meet him. And I've told you the story about my aunt dying of bone cancer, being in hospice, you know, just pushing that morphine button every moment. But she could because she was in so much pain. But she praised God all the way out. And like I said before, she was saying, I'm healed, I'm healed, I'm healed. And then one moment she opened her eyes in heaven and Jesus said, hey, you're healed. That's it. So no, no, no joke on me. No joke on me. You can take Prozac and be depressed if you want. Nothing against the doctors who are helping you. But I'm just here to tell you, I'd rather believe that God can change the world than accept it the way it is and die a mess and depressed. Okay? I'm going to put my faith in Jesus, and this has been working great for me. You want to compare lives? Let's go. I'll compare my life to anybody right now. Let's go. Let's compare marriages. Let's compare our children. Let's do a happy test. Let's see how often you, you have uh, you know, inclinations towards self-hatred and all of that. I'm walking around blessed, man. I'm not saying that I haven't had problems in life. I'm saying I've seen the problem solver solve those problems. And so if he's done it for me, he'll do it for you. I've seen enough mountains be cast in the sea that I'll talk to Mount Everest if that make you happy. I'll try it just because I believe God can do it. Amen? And so the language of the earth is faith. The language of the earth is intelligence and logic, and sometimes people try to pit it against each other. They are not. Faith is reasonable. It's reasonable to walk on water when the creator of water is there. It's reasonable to ask him to spread a sea when you go like this with your arms because he's there. Once again, if you haven't seen that in CGI, you don't understand the power of our God. Our God is bigger than a CGI guy on a camera screen or moving around with green screen, right? This is our God's CGI. And the beauty of it, the Bible says, in him and through him and to him are all things. We're going back to him. And the greatest thing at that moment in judgment is you getting exactly what you want. If you've wanted an eternity without him, bingo, you got it. Hello, hell, there you go. And if you want an eternity with him, that's heaven. That's the beauty of God. Self-determination. And so the person flicking off God saying, I don't like you. You made this world too bad with all this suffering. I'm so upset. Okay, let's fix the problem. Take away your free will, make you a robot, push a button, have you praise God all day. Is that what you want? You see, they actually value the ability to flick off God because self-determination is the highest value to them. And so what are we supposed to do? Pray the prayer of Jesus. Not my will, but your will be done. We are to deny ourselves, taking the most valuable thing that we have, the thing that we could turn on God and curse him out with, we are to turn it towards him in praise and go, I surrender. I surrender. I followed the, 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 the treacherous traitor of the snake long enough. I've tried this on my own. I've only seen the destruction. I choose you, and I follow you. Let's go move some mountains, Jesus. Amen. That's what it's about. Let's go to the next section. Are you all ready? I got three more to go in about 10 minutes. Come on, help me, Jesus. Let's go to verse 23. Then Jesus entered the temple courts. Remember, last time he was there, he was turning over the tables. Now he's going to hang out with them a little bit. And while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? How many know that's a good question to ask Jesus? 
Like, Jesus, you got a lot of authority, man. Who gave this to you? Great question. But how many know it's already been answered? How many know it was answered earlier on in Jesus' life? Go to Matthew chapter 3. Where did Jesus get his authority from? Did he get it from the police? Did he get it from the government? Where did he get it from? God, specifically, what person of the triune God gave him authority? His father, who he's equal with, right? Different persons, but equal in authority. Look at this. In the baptismal water of verse 16, Jesus was baptized. He went up out of the water. At that moment, moment, heaven opened up. John the Baptist is the he there. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. There's the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And a voice came from heaven saying, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Where did he get his authority from? His Father. Why did he need authority if he was equal to God the Father? Some people try to play tricks with us. Is Jesus God? Yes, he's God. Uh, if, was he always God? Yes, he was always God. Then why did he need authority from his father? Why did he get tired? Why did he do all this? Because he became a man like us. Why did he have to become a man like us? Well, let's put it in easy, understandable English here. Imagine you create the Simpsons, you give them free will, and the Simpsons rebel against you and start turning that place into a crazy place. You then decide to become one of those Simpsons, one of those people, and you enter into that world. Are you going to enter into that world as a three-dimensional object and just freak them out? No, you're going to enter into the world of the Simpsons as a two-dimensional object, and you're going to dial yourself down so that you can talk to them and not glow and burn their eyes out every second. Are you listening? When I wrestle with my children, I don't take them and throw them across the room. I dial it down. When Jesus came into our dimension, what does he do? He dials it down. Philippians chapter 2, he lives like us. He ties his divine privileges behind his back, and he says, I'll show you how to be like what I wanted you to be like. You didn't do this right. I'll be the second Adam. Hit reset. Watch me, and I'm going to finish this. Okay, so when we come to Jesus being baptized, the authority being bestowed upon him is as our representative for man. That's why he's getting baptized. You remember John said, why don't you have to baptize you? You're the son of God. Don't you know this? <laughs> you don't have to repent of sin. And he said, he said, the reason why I'm doing this is to fulfill righteousness. I'm showing you the way to please God. He's our perfect example. He's not our Superman. How many here can run as fast as Superman can fly? Can you do that? So if I said, be like Superman on the track field today, boys and girls, is that a good example? No, you can't be like Superman on the track. But if I say, be like Jesus, and everything Jesus is doing, he's doing it with the dialed up power of God, can you be like Jesus? No, you can't because he's doing it dialed up on the power of God. But if Jesus dialed it down to the way of men and the way we live, can you then be like Jesus? See, Jesus dialed it down. The Bible says he kenosis in the Greek. He emptied himself so that he might be our example and became the, the servant. And that's why he said, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. Let's go back to the notes. So they ask him, Jesus, where does your authority come from? Now, how many like sassy Jesus? Okay, because here comes sassy Jesus. Not sashaying Jesus. It's different. Sassy Jesus. Everybody say sassy Jesus. Thank you. Now, there are some of you here that like sassy Jesus a little bit too much because you just love that sassy Jesus so you can bring out your sass. But how many of you, let's be honest, you get a little intimidated by Jesus' sass because you're like, man, I always thought Jesus was nice and I thought he was like never offending people. Well, guess what? There is a sassy side to Jesus and sass is not bad. Sass can be good. So they ask him, where does your authority come from? Now, look how he replies to them. 
I will ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism. Where did it come from? Now, answering a question with a question, the Socratic method from Socrates, is a great way to learn. A lot of times we don't like it in debate because it's like dodging po politicians do that all the time. What did you do with the money? You know, what did you do with the money? You know, well, what do you think I did with the money? You think I did this? You think? And they're just, you know, just blowing off words there. But, but Jesus is asking this question in answer to their question because he's done with them asking from the wrong motives. So he's like, I know you guys always come to test me. Let me ask you a question first. Where did John's baptism, that authority for John to go out, preach repentance, people get baptized, where did that come from? Was it from heaven or human origin? Somebody say the three laws of logic. What you see right here are the three laws of logic from Jesus, and you probably didn't even know they were there. How many know what the three laws of logic are developed by the early Greeks? Okay, because I was going to call on you if you raised your hand, because you're logical, right? You know this. Law of identity, law of non-contradiction, the law of the excluded middle, okay? These are the three main laws of logic when we do all of our reasoning from. Let's start with the law of identity. A thing is what it is. A thing is what it is. It cannot be something other than what it is and be what it is. Does everybody get the law of identity? Just somebody say it is what it is. Okay. The second law plays right off of that, the law of non-contradiction. A thing cannot be what it is and another thing that it is not at the same time. The law of non-contradiction. How many are you happy about that law? The third law is the law of the excluded middle. Whatever you say about the thing that is, it is either what you are saying is either true or false. It cannot be both. Do you know anything that's true and false at the same time? Yes or no? Do you know something that's true and false at the same time? Do you guys want me just to tell you Bible stories? Are you guys ready to learn? Can something be true and false at the same time? Jesus developed all three laws right there, put them right into practice. Where's the law of identity? He talks about John's baptism. It's a thing. It is what it is. It cannot be something else. He then uses John's baptism to bring about the two other laws. John's baptism, is it from heaven or human origin. It cannot be both at the same time. He, John, he, John, could not receive his own authority and then receive God's authority at the same time. One is the source. It is either John made this up in his own head, like Joseph Smith and other cult leaders, you know, you hear about, and Scientology and L. Ron Hubbard. He either made it up in his own head or God gave it to him. Does everybody get that? And then the excluded middle. It is either true, God gave it to him, or it is false, that God gave it to him. It is either true, that he gave it to himself, and by his own authority, or it is false. How many know Jesus is a lot smarter than we give him credit for? There he is. There's your Jesus, being sassy, breaking down the laws of logic. Let's see how these boys respond to it. They discussed it amongst themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, Jesus, we don't know. Then he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Well, I'm going about my day. Thank you very much. Oh, I love Jesus. Sassy, sassy Jesus. See, some of us in American culture, we're so privileged, we just... 
We just think we can call Jesus right over here and you explain to me why my mom died, Jesus. Explain to me why children die in cancer, you know? And I just feel Jesus ask us right back. Well, I'm going to ask you a question. Who gave you a mom? Who gave you a brain to even understand when you're sad? Unless you'll answer that, yourself or God, you know, unless you answer that question, I'm not going to tell you why children die and why you're sick and why things don't go your way. You see, we come from a God origin, don't we? And as much as we don't like what's going on down here sometimes, we have one of two choices. We either trust him and receive the reward of our suffering, or we suffer now because your mom's not coming back, y'all. Your dad's not coming back. That child you lost. Listen, you suffer now, and then you suffer forever in hell because you dared to flick him off and say, you owe me more than this. Suffer now. Be rewarded later. Suffer now. Suffer later. And I can just hear somebody go back, I don't like those options. You don't have a choice. You're already existing in it, baby. You're already existing. Some people go, oh, I just die, I die. I just turn to dust. Okay, dust, can I get your money now, your house now, your car now? Can I get your raises now? Because you're just dust. You're that stuff that I cleaned from my house. If that's all you're going to become, well, can I, get your, uh, can I get your yacht down there at the lake, man? Can I get your sea dew? No, see, you don't live like dust, do you? You don't live like dust. You make believe you're going to become dust because you don't like the reality. You're not in control. Can I give you a couple things you're not in control over? You're not in control over how fast this world's spinning right now. You're not in control over whether or not that sun continues to burn so we have light. You're not in control over about 20 different laws of nature that hold your molecules in motion so that you don't go Xanos on us right now. What was his name, Xanos? Thanos. Yeah, Thanos flipped his fingers. So let me ask you a question. You exist. You know you exist. And now you have to deal with it. Do you trust the one who has the authority, God, or do you want to take the wheel? Now remember, when you take that wheel, you're going to use that thing called your thinker again and that logic that you have zero explanation for where it came from. Now you're going to argue with them or you're going to say, no, it came from God. All authority comes from God. Life comes from God. Reason comes from God. Well, if you're going to do that, you ought to be a Christian because Jesus is the voice of God. His scriptures are what we live by. His truth is how we discern the most important things in life. And so I want to ask you now, do you trust this authority? Because if you look at me as a pastor and go, Pastor, I don't like it when you tell me adulterers don't go to heaven and the, you know, the homosexual or the cowardly, all these things that appear to be black and white in the Bible. Pastor, I, I don't agree with that. Then I want to ask you, where did your authority come from to question this? Where did your authority come from? Literally, Tina, I talked about you in the first service. What verse did you put up, word for word, no comments, and the Christian came underneath that, the girl who used to go to this church, and she said, I don't agree with that. Yeah, so 1 John what? Let's go to 1 John. I want to put 1 John 3.3. 3. Go to 1 John 3, 9, everybody. How many love social media? <laughs> How many kind of sort of love it and kind of sort of hate it? Right? It brings out the best and worst, right? I get to see my, my parents and them enjoying Florida weather all the time, and then I have to hear all the other nonsense. But, you know, it has its benefits. But let's look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. Tina put this up on Facebook, and I was so caught off by the redonkulousness of somebody's response. 
This is what it says, 1 John 3, 9. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. She just put it up, right? You just put it up. That was it. And a Christian who used to attend this church wrote underneath that, I don't agree with that. <laughs> okay. Uh, where did your authority come from? Did you get that at the quick trip or that gas station? You know, did you buy that at 7-Eleven, your authority badge? She didn't, even, she didn't even say anything. She didn't say like, this means you have to stop doing X, Y, and Z kind of sins. She literally just put the scripture up there to remind everyone who claims to be a Christian, you may not be sinless, but you ought to be sinning less. I cannot continually lie against my wife and expect, uh, lie to my wife and expect to have a good marriage. I have to have genuine repentance and change and transformation. Are we all together on that? And the Christian wrote underneath that, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with you not agreeing with that. You have zero authority. Let's, let's, have you stand, let's, let's have you stand in front of a tank in the middle of war and say you don't agree with the tank. Let's see how that goes for you. Let's have you go to the IRS office and say, I don't agree with your taxes, okay? I mean, you can say you don't agree. That's wonderful. You have the right to do that. Just like the child who was forced to clean their room after going back and forth, back and forth, and then the child was still mad and upset even after the room was clean, and the parent said, why are you mad? You've already done it. It's already done. It's still dirty in my mind. In my mind, it's still dirty. To the last ounce of our being, we know how to be prideful, don't we? And so now we have the choice. Do we accept this authority? Because John was a man, right? John wasn't glowing. John wasn't an angel. But he was pointing his finger, telling people to repent. Go to Matthew 28, please. Now we're supposed to read our Bibles and point things out in this culture. And people get upset with that. Don't judge me, man. Don't judge me. Okay, what am I doing to judge you? Do I look like Judge Judy? Do I have a gavel in my hand, bro? Listen to me. Am I making you pay a fine? What am I? I'm not judging. I'm telling. I'm preaching. Now it's up to you to decide. And of course we are to make judgments. How many make judgments every day? How many make judgments about what you eat? How many make judgments about what friends you're going to be with? How many know you don't go to Lower Wacker Drive to, uh, to hire a babysitter? How many have made that judgment right? Hey, I need a babysitter today. Nobody's available. Where can we go? Lower Wacker Drive. There's some people that have free time down there. Let's go get them. How many make judgments like that? Okay, so even in that sense, judgments aren't necessarily always wrong. Matthew 28, are you there, good sir? 28, you got to turn to it in the scriptures, please. Go to verse 18. Jesus said, all authority is his. How much authority belongs to Jesus? Come on, how much? Oh, I love you guys as Presbyterians, but can we be Pentecostals today? How much authority belongs to Jesus? Thank you. You guys are awesome. Look at it. All authority. End of the book of Matthew. How many know it's okay to skip ahead in this class? All authority. End of the book. And heaven on earth has been given to me. Jesus at the resurrection had all authority. Now what does he say? Does he say, therefore go to church and wait for angels to make all this better? Wait for everybody else to, to mess up their own lives, and then I'll just come down and tell them what to do. No, look at what it says. You, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Can you make yourself a disciple? No, does a cake make itself? No, you have to be made a disciple. How are you made a disciple? By another disciple. 
So go and make disciples. It is the job of every Christian to make a disciple. How do you make a disciple? Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then do what? Verse 20. Let's read it together. One, two, three. And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. How much of this am I supposed to teach you to obey? Okay. Now how much are you to teach your friend to obey? Now it's up to them whether they obey, right? Love you, but I got to tell you, and surely I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. Let's go back to our notes, and I think I can plow through these things. Uh, Adam, will you come please buy me some time with some soft music? <sighs> I need a little bit more time, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get there, okay? So he answers their question about authority by basically correcting them. John got his authority from God, and they don't know where God is in their life because they don't know how to receive authority. Now watch this. Jesus now tells a parable right about them. There's going to be two back to back, so I'm just going to read it. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went out to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later on, he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He said, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first. Jesus said, truly, I tell you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. Even after you saw this, you did not what? What did they not do? And the other thing, they did not and, one more time, they did not and believe. Boom. That's where we're at right now. Think about it. People who do not receive our message are not willing to repent and believe. What are the two sons? Jews and Gentiles. The Gentiles were chosen. And they said, we'll obey, we'll obey. And the Gentiles were all the other nations. And they're like, forget you. We're going to be our own gods. We're going to make Pharaoh God. We're going to make Zeus God. And these pagans go all the way over here. But guess what now Jesus is saying? The Jews who were chosen to keep the commands, they said they were going to do it, but they haven't. But now the Gentiles, the people who worshiped at Machu Picchu, those who worship Zeus and Bacchus and the gods of the Greeks, those who worship their ancestors, those who followed men and gurus, those are now hearing the gospel, the message, and they're repenting. Are the Jews done with? No, of course not. God still has a plan, but he's telling them, you guys have been like that son who sits at the house and goes, yeah, dad, I'll go cut the grass, I'll go cut the grass, but you never do. That's what you guys are like. But you know what the pagans are like? They're like the people who get upset and go, no, nah, dad, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. But then when dad comes home, it's done because they felt bad. You see, where did pagans come from? Where did my people go wrong? The Italians. Where did my wife's people go wrong? The Greeks. Where did the, the, the Latin Americans, what we would know as the Native Americans, where did they go wrong? And ancestor worship or, or in the continent of Africa, Southeast Asia. We all came from Adam and Eve reduced down to Noah in the flood and came off that boat. And the majority of all of our ancestors said, forget you, God, I'm doing my own thing. And he picked out the Jewish people out of one nation. And he said, I'm going to choose you. And over and over again, they said they were going to do it. But they never did, did they? But really, aren't they just a representative of all the human race? Really, the Jewish people have shown us how bad we really are. So we can relate to both. Now watch the last parable. You guys ready? Come on, somebody say, I'm ready. Man, I got to get this out. Get it right here. Come on, help us, Jesus. 
Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent out his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. Everybody get the story. A guy owned land, built the stuff, and said, take care of it. Just give me some of the money from it. Okay, does everybody get that? It's called sharecropping. It's not necessarily always bad. It's a good way to make money if you can't afford land. Look what the people did. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, stoned a third. Then he sent out other servants to them more than the first. And the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his what? He sent his what? He sent his son to them. Thank you. They will respect my son, he said. And I remember Jesus is telling the story. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they went and took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Jesus crucified outside of Jerusalem, wasn't he? Jesus is predicting his own death by these people he's literally talking to right now with the beauty of our Savior. Verse 40. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to the tenants who have killed all of the servants, have killed his own son? Listen to the words out of their mouth. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end. They know better, don't they? But they don't know it's on them. He'll destroy those wretches and bring them to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants. Somebody say other tenants. Thank you. Who will give him his share of the crop. That's where share crop comes from at harvest time. Now look at what Jesus said to them. Have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. You didn't think you needed this cornerstone, but the cornerstone is what the whole building's on. You don't think you need me, but I'm what's holding this whole thing up is what he's saying. Therefore, look at it. Here it comes. It's sad, but it's happy because it's like sad for them, but happy for us. But we're still praying for them to come back. Watch verse 43. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. If you don't treat this stone right, you're going to be broken. And the stone is Jesus. He'll crush you to pieces, man. Come on, somebody. Wake up today. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to love him and ask for repentance and start believing. They looked for a way to arrest him. But they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. We begin to see the road to Calvary. Why did the road to Calvary start? Because they wouldn't repent. They just wouldn't say, we're sorry. We've treated your prophets bad. We've treated your leaders bad. We're going to eventually kill you and treat you bad. But we're not going to repent. We're going to fight to the bitter end, they're saying in other words. Even though they knew it was about them. Let me ask you a question. Are you still fighting against God? Who owns this earth? Who owns it? Who owns all the talents you have? One of the things about me doing a side gig for Uber and uh, Lyft, I get to meet a lot of smart people, and it just amazes me how little acknowledgement they give to God. They had about as much to do with their brain capacity as they have to do with the the, uh, rings around Saturn right now. Does Saturn have rings? Okay, thank you. 
Because that would have that been dumb if I didn't know that. I, I was just hanging in there for a good example. Do you have anything to do with the rings around Saturn? Did you have anything to do with you being born a male or a female? Brown hair, blue eye, green eye. Did you have anything to do with that? Did you have anything to do with the brain function and right now the ability to be conscious and aware and to grow in your understanding? Did you have anything to do with that? The one thing you can do now is use that for good, right? But you should acknowledge the God who gave it to you. Did those people, did, they, did those people buy the land? Did they build the wall? Did they do the wine press stuff? No. But what did they do? They wanted to take the credit for all the fruit. And then when the owner came and said, hey, you got to give back that fruit. Now you gotta, you got to pay something back. They got so angry. You see, is really hell that unfair when you think about it? Is it really? It's not, is it? You've been on God's earth. He made you. He gave you choice. And now all he is asking you is to acknowledge him. Hey, I didn't make this place. I use this place. Thank you, God, for this place. Help me take care of it. God, I didn't give myself this. But, Lord, I'm going to use it for you and to help others. I'm going to love you with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, all my strength. And I'm going to love my neighbor as myself. I'm going to give back just a little bit to show you how much I love you. And that little bit to you is all that I have. So I just, I give it. That's all we have to give back. That's it. And people are going, I don't want to love you. I don't want to love my neighbor as myself. I don't want to do that. And God is saying, I'm coming. And here's the warning. Here's the warning, people. If he would take the kingdom from his own Jewish people and give it to the Gentiles, when Armageddon comes, he will take it from you and he will give it to those who wanted it. Just like he came the first time and was dealing out curses and dealing with people's sin, he's coming the second time. When we get to the destruction of Jerusalem, one of the signs of the end times, that shows us that they reaped what they sowed. They rejected their Messiah. They lost their temple. They never get back into the land until 1948, and they still don't have a temple back. That's a long time to be in time out. Are you listening? God put Israel in time out. And if you think it's going to be different for you and I, it's not. But is grace there for Israel? Grace is there right now. you got to read the New Testament names with the accent of the Jewish people's language. They're all Jewish. Yaqub. You know, all these beautiful Hebrew names. You can't be against the Jews and love Jesus. Jesus was a Jew. His people were just Paul was a Jew. But what is happening right now? God is letting the Gentiles come in. And that's our turn. Most of us are Gentiles. And let's learn from them. And Romans 11 says, in the end, he goes from a fig tree example to a, vi a vine example. He says, the Jewish people will come in and all the Gentiles will come in. And there'll be every nation, tribe, and tongue, every language. And they'll all have one thing in common in the kingdom of God they will all have chosen Jesus to be their king. So everybody that looks like you is not you. I got people that look just like me, Italian, Polish, whatever, but they're not like me here. You who are African-American, Southeast Asian, etc., you are more like me than my own brother 
because my brothers retracted Christ. So every nation, tribe, and language, etc., is molded into the body of Christ where it's not our culture that matters. It's Christ's culture that matters. I, I love my wife's Greek cooking, and I love, uh, you know, arroz con candules, and I love panse, and I love all these wonderful things. But how many know our culture is here, and Christ's culture goes right there because he wants a people that want him, that want him. Do you want him today? Let's stand up and give it up for him today. Come on, we love you, Jesus. Altar workers, would you come? We're going to close out in prayer. If this